cool. All right, John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he had performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, uh, first to the disciples, and then the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over, uh, by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15 says that, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we do just ask that you would speak to us today, God. Specifically for me, Lord, I pray that you use me as a vessel uh, to teach, Lord, to share your word and to define and to demonstrate what it says, Lord, that we can be continue to grow for your righteousness, God. For any of us who are here that might be anxious or worried, I pray that you calm those nerves. And Lord, I do just ask again that you would bless today. We pray this in your name. We all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be here. I felt that the only appropriate way to root on the Cardinals from the pulpit was a maroon sweater. I see some of you guys are wearing Eagles jerseys. I feel like the only jersey you can wear from a pulpit in South Jersey is probably Nick Foles, you know? So today we're going to be looking at something called the process of discipleship. So we see here in John chapter 6 that Jesus had fed 5,000 people. We all know this miracle. It's one of the only miracles that's actually recorded in all four Gospels, right? And we all know this. I mean, the kids learn about it from their, like, you know, three years old. We all know about this miracle, you know, five barley loaves and two fish. But I believe what's being demonstrated here is this question that I'm going to be referring to throughout the entirety of our study. And that question is this. How much does it take to derail your relationship with the Lord? I want to ask that again for, you know, to amplify. How much does it take to prevent you from meeting with Jesus, right? And Jesus is, dis- is actually displaying that here in his discipleship with his disciples. And he's displaying this through three different points that we're actually going to be looking at today. And the first one is this. Following Jesus is not something that's casual. It's not something that you can do passively. But rather... It's a matter of being discipled, and we know this, right? We've known this for a while because we all know the verse from Matthew that says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that. We know that Christianity is not casual, it's not passive, but it's a discipleship, right? Second thing is this. Though we fail, God still uses us to uh, to accomplish His miracles, right? And the third thing is that Jesus will not be anything to us other than who he is, and that's Lord and Savior. And so we look at John chapter 6, and it begins, look there with me in verse 1, it says, after these things, right? And so anytime in our Bible study we see things like now, therefore, or after these things, or after these events, or any kind of you know uh, context clue like that, it's important for us to be able to look back and go, okay, well, what's going on? What's going on so that we can better understand the context of this story? And so when John writes after these things, he's referring to two events in John chapter 5. The first event, you might recall, is a healing that took, that took place at a pool called Bethesda. Now essentially what took place was that there was a feast of the Jews that was going on. And you might remember that during the feasts, uh, it is required for um, all the Jews to um, be there in Jerusalem as they celebrate this feast. 
Now, as they're celebrating this feast, there's kind of like this circulating rumor going around, right? That at specific times, and we can assume that it was maybe like certain hours through the day, and maybe during particular feasts, what would happen was that an angel, now remember, this is a rumor, an angel would come down, he would enter the pool of Bethesda, he would stir the water, and once the water was stirred, the people would jump into the water, and whoever the first person was to jump into the water was healed of all infirmities, uh, issues that they might have had, sicknesses, whatever, right? So there's this massive rumor going around um, saying that that's what's going on, and this causes thousands of people, literally the Bible uses the word a multitude, uh, to stay at this pool during a feast time, which is when you're supposed to be sacrificing, being on the temple, having communion with your fellow Jews. No, they're, they're at this pool because there's this rumor saying, hey, listen, if you're the first person to jump into this pool, you're going to get healed, right? So they're all hanging out there, and Jesus approaches um, these group of people who we can all say that these people were the kind of people that would say something like, you know, this is the only thing that's going to make me well. This is the only thing that's going to heal me. You know, of all the things that I've done, of all the things that I've gone through of my entire life, this is the one thing that might actually work for me, right? They weren't at the temple. They weren't seeing a physician for whatever illness they might have had. They were cashing their chips in, if you would, for a rumor, And so Jesus shows up, and he approaches one man out of thousands, right? He approaches one man, and he asks this man, he says, do you want to be made well? And after a short debate, the man kind of reminds Jesus of the rules of the rumor, and he says, listen here, Jesus, okay? First off, I'm paralyzed. I can't even walk. Second thing is that even if you were to pick me up and throw me into the water, someone else always beats me. He's telling Jesus, it's not possible. This is the only way I can get healed, and I am not even, uh, I guess, qualified enough to make it work. And then Jesus offered him another way. He says, listen, I have another way for you. Take up your bed and walk. And so now you would think, man, that guy probably became one of the 12 disciples. He probably became some like fervent evangelist. No, you want to know what that man did? He ratched Jesus out to the Pharisees for healing him. And then, so next thing you know, that goes into our second topic of what happens in John chapter 5, which is that a debate ensues between Jesus and the Pharisees. You see, because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him, of which Jesus responds to them, and he incriminates them using their own words to show that they're actually in the wrong. And he says in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but these are they that testify of me. And so because of these two events here, you know, Jesus healing someone miraculously and providing him another way out, and debating with the Pharisees, giving them a deep theological understanding of Jesus' ministry and his purpose and his sonship to God, Jesus kind of starts to get popular. He kind of starts to get a little bit of a crowd. And we see this displayed in the text, but I want you to pay attention to how Jesus responds to his increasing popularity. And this is something that, you know, we might be able to add as like an apolog- apologetic defense. You see, religious guys love followings. You look at these big churches down in like Texas and they got thousands of people. There's a church in Texas. I don't even know what it is, uh, but they have like a 10,000 population church. And in, uh, it's a North African country. They have more attendees in their church than this one country has in Christians total. Isn't that nuts? I learned that in my missionaries class when I was at Bible college and it blew me away. Because religious guys love followings. They love massive crowds. They love people. They feel like they're getting powerful, right? Well, Jesus gets a following. He starts getting popular. And I want you to pay attention to what he does to his popularity and how this defines how Jesus is a lot more than just somebody, um, you know, just than some religious figure. So when we read verses 1 through 3 again, it says this. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is, in the, which is, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. We saw that in John chapter 5. In verse 3, pay attention to this verse here. It says, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And so that's the response that Jesus has to his increasing popularity. 5,000 people out of nowhere start following him. And you want to know what he does? He hikes up a mountain. And that right there is a perfect way to define who Jesus is in his ministry. He's not somebody just to have massive crowds, but he's looking for followers, right? If you wanted to put that in like a, I guess like a tweetable phrase, you could say he's not worried about the following, but the followers, right? He's worried about the individual. And so we see here that 
Um, as Jesus crosses the Galilee, what we actually learn from the other Gospels, right, is that what happened was that before Jesus crossed the Galilee, he was sending his disciples out um, to kind of do ministry in local towns, right? He was sending them out two by two, and he said, okay, I want you guys to go out, do ministry so that I'm not babysitting you anymore, and I want you to learn on your own, and when you come back, tell me what happened, right? So they go out, and they come back to Jesus, and they're like, man, we healed the sick, we did this, we did that, and bad news, um, John the Baptist is dead. And so they come back and they tell Jesus this news. And then what we learn is that Jesus actually crosses the Galilee to get away from these crowds and to actually go up on the mountains so that he can mourn. But what Mark tells us is that when he goes across the Galilee, he sees the crowd there waiting for him, right? Now the Galilee was just a small lake. You could literally see all of it when you're standing on a hill. It's, it's not that big. Um, and so as he's leaving, you know, you can imagine that the crowds went around and they went to where Jesus was going and they were waiting there for him, right? And the Gospel of Mark says that when Jesus was approaching them, you know, as he's on his boat, he says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, and I, you know what? I think that's a message in and of itself right there, right? Jesus is trying to mourn the loss of his cousin. He goes to an area to retreat almost, and then there's ministry there. There's people. And he says that there's people who are like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And so he denied his own um, passion, his own preferences to serve them, right? And that's, that's what he's trying to do, and he's ministering to them. And so what Mark tells us, again, and the other Gospels, is that Jesus is there, and he's ministering to them. He's teaching them. He's spending time with them. He's with them, right? And he's doing all this ministry with, with what we know as 5,000 men. And then what happens after a few days is that Jesus actually, as we see here in John chapter 3, or John chapter 6, verse 3, it says that after he was teaching them, Jesus decides to go up a mountain, Right? And I think that's kind of odd, but I think what this tells us is something that, you know, is going to actually amplify our points for today. And I think what this tells us is that although Jesus had compassion on this multitude, and he taught them as well, and he was there, and he was with them, I think what this is showing us is that Jesus' end goal is to make disciples, right? It's to get people from a point of just kind of hanging out with Jesus to knowing that, hey, this is my Lord and Savior, right? And so his end goal is to make disciples and is not to endorse something that I like to call casual Christianity. And so what Jesus does is he hikes up a mountain, or in other words, he does something a little tough, right? He does something a little tough because what he wants to do is he wants to separate casual believers from disciples. And I want you to pay attention to the end of verse 3 of who actually joins with him. Look at verse 3 again. It says that Jesus went up the mountain and there he sat with his disciples, so he's there with 5,000 people, right? All these people. He's teaching them for several days. And then he adds a little bit of a difficulty into the mix, right? He goes up a mountain, and the only people that follow him are his disciples. This brings us to our first point today. What does it take to prevent you from pursuing Jesus? Right? What does it take? Some people, right, can be able to say things like Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says, no height, nor depth, nor governments, no angels, nor this, nor that can separate us from the love that we have in Jesus, right? And some people, right, some of us, I'll even throw my, my own self and my own hat in the ring, is we get that one text message in the morning, and there goes the rest of the day. And we don't spend any time with the Lord. And I'm asking that question not to condemn, but to genuinely evaluate our own lives. What does it take to prevent you to be the obstacle from you meeting with the Lord. The Lord adds a little bit of difficulty to this mix because he wants to pull the disciples from this massive group here. And pay attention to the numbers. Do we have thousands of disciples or do we have thousands of people who are just casually hanging out with Jesus? We, have, we only have a few disciples, right? And so that means it's difficult. It's not easy. He adds a little bit to the mix because he wants to see, okay, how far are you willing to go? And so he separates, you know, casual Christians from disciples. And I like to define that as people who have kind of become comfortable with acknowledging things like, all right, you know, I go to church. You know, I, 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 you know, maybe I read my Bible. Maybe I do this. Maybe I do that. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable doing these kind of things, right? And I almost define that as like fleshly righteousness. You know, that's kind of like something like through your acts, you've kind of looked at what you've done and kind of been like, okay, I'm righteous because look what I do, Right. And that's, that's not discipleship. That's not righteousness. And the example there is those 5,000 men. They're there with Jesus. They're hearing his word. They can see him. He's visibly there, right? But Jesus adds a little bit of hardship. He goes up a mountain. And in this region of Galilee, it's not like a steep climb. It's just like a little lump. 
It's like a little hill. It's called the Golan Heights. It's a little hill that just kind of goes a little bit up, and they don't follow him. So although they're there, they're hanging out with Jesus, they're hearing his word, they're coming to these events, they're this and that and this and that, they will not, by any means, undergo any hardship for the Lord. And I want to know, is that us? And the problem with that type of casual faith is that it's rooted in disbelief. You see, here's a fact. When Jesus... um, fed the 5,000 people, what happens is that he retreats and that those 5,000 people, again, come up to him later in chapter 6, in verse 26. They approach him and they say, Jesus, like, where have you been? Like, we've been looking for you, this and that. And Jesus says to them, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You see, that casual faith, it's, it's not rooted in genuine faith. It's not rooted in belief. It's rooted in disbelief. And I want to kind of give you another thing that you might be able to remember. Casual Christians, casual believers, people who don't have that discipled faith, they seek the Lord for what he gives. Disciples seek the Lord for who he is. Make sense? And so I want you to ask yourself, what does it take to stop you from pursuing the Lord? Right? Is it your phone? Is it work? Is it this? Is it that? Whatever it is. And I want, I'm not trying to set up parameters, right, of what holiness is. I'm not trying to be like, okay, unless you do these things, you're a disciple. Because, again, that goes back to that um, fleshly righteousness, if you would, of being like, okay, I've done all these things. I have three hours of disciple time in the, war, in the morning, and then I do this, and I do that, and I evangelize every night. Like, those works is not, is not what produces righteousness. It's how much are you willing to go through to seek the Lord, right? And so I want you to remember discipleship and growth in Jesus only come after we decide to make that climb up that mountain to endure through the distractions and the hardships to pursue the Lord. And so again, what comes after that climb? Well, discipleship does. And so Jesus makes that climb. The disciples come with him to hear from him. And Jesus begins to disciple uh, those who come with him. Specifically, we see here that he disciples Philip. And so if you read there with me in verse 4 through 9, it says, now the, fa- now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And so Jesus leaves the crowd. He walks up the mountain with his disciples. And he begins like this one-on-one discipleship with his disciples there. He's, he's personally teaching them. He's giving them lessons that they can have on a one-on-one basis. This is more personal, right? And so he's there with his disciples, and he sees the crowd start approaching him, right? And kind of going off of what we said earlier about how casual believers, they seek the Lord for what he gives. Well, these people, as we know through other gospel accounts, the day is getting late. Sun is setting, and they're hungry. They haven't eaten for several days. And so we know that they're approaching Jesus because they're hungry, right? And they want to know what to do with that matter. And so we can assume that Jesus asked Philip to answer that question, right? And so he looks at Philip, and he says, he says hey, what shall we, he says, where shall, where shall we buy bread that they may eat? Right, he says that in verse 5. Then he says in verse 6, But this he said to test him, for he himself already knew what he would do. So Philip is a local, right? Philip's actually from this region. He kind of lives right down the street. And Jesus kind of asks him, he says, Hey, listen, there's 5,000 people coming. They're all hungry. Where can we go to feed them? But Philip doesn't answer that question. He doesn't give Jesus the answer that he's looking for. Look what he says. He says, 200 denarii, which is about half a year worth of wages, 200 denarii is not sufficient for them that every one of them might have a little bit. So in other words, you know, Jesus says to him, hey, where can we take these people out to eat? And then Philip kind of responds, why? It's physically impossible. And so essentially what Jesus is doing here is he's prodding Philip's heart to see if there's any faith there. He wants to see if he's going to respond with any faith, but as we see in verse 7, he responds with disbelief. He answers the wrong question. He's not answering Jesus and saying, yeah, well, you know, we can actually go down the street. There's a baker there. I know the guy, you know, and this and that. He's not saying that. He's saying, Jesus, this is physically impossible. I don't understand why, you, why you're even asking this question. And so sometimes, out of our own fear of what isn't physically possible, 
we become physically prevented from having faith and doing what the Lord wants us to do and walking in that. And so the second point today is this. What physical fears do you have that are preventing you from walking in God's plan for your life? You know, maybe just like Philip, we might be looking at the physical and might be thinking to ourselves, man, that is absolutely impossible. And because we look at the physical, we end up, instead of trusting the Lord, we end up being filled with disbelief. But I want you to remember the words that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8-9, through 9, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from such a great death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will start to deliver us. You know, sometimes we forget, right, that Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then so when Jesus asks these questions, we have to remember that we're not, we're not talking about the physical. We're talking about Jesus's capability to do anything he wants if it's his will. And so part of discipleship, right, going back to that, is being able to learn that through any means necessary, and I would even make the argument that that's probably why Jesus asked Philip. Because, you know, Peter lived right across the bay. Peter lived in Capernaum. And so Peter would have known, hey, Jesus, maybe if we just go up the highway a little bit, I know this guy, and we know how Peter responds. We know that Peter's the type of guy that would be like, oh, well, Jesus, you can do anything if you want to, right? And it's ironic because Peter's brother is the one that actually kind of interjects, you know? But Peter, or Jesus doesn't ask Peter. He doesn't ask John. He doesn't ask, he asks Philip. Why? Because the part of discipleship is getting to a point where in our own faith, we can grow to a point where we can understand, Lord, whatever you do, it's possible, right? And so he asks Philip because Philip didn't have that faith, that faith inside of our heart, right? And so part of our discipleship is learning that through any means necessary so that we can come to a point of being able to say, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? And so, you know what? Let me make this point again. The importance of choosing to make that climb with the Lord, of making that climb up that mountain, uh, the importance is there because when we fail, and we will, when we fail, we are not surrounded by worldly influences, but we're surrounded by Jesus. You see, Philip failed. Philip answered incorrectly, and he displayed a lack of faith. But because Philip was there on the mountain, he did not become like, a, like an atheist. He didn't become somebody that rejected the Lord. He was there and he was able to learn from his lesson, right? You know, and I've, I gotta say, I personally, you know, from the youth group, right? I've personally seen kids that they've come to the youth group, right? They've displayed tremendous amounts of growth, coming to a point where they wouldn't even pray at all to now they're saying things like, hey man, pray for me for these reasons and I believe the Lord's gonna move. And I would see this crazy work going on, right? And then life gets a little tough. Jesus climbs the mountain, and instead of climbing that mountain with him, they decide to leave. They don't come. They don't climb the mountain. And when they fail, because we will, right, they end up making these mistakes, and they stop pursuing the Lord. I like to give this metaphor to them. You know, I like to give this metaphor, and I say, you know, typically when we read the Bible, we see that the Lord references our growth as like an agricultural process, as like fruit, as like growing in the Lord, as like a tree or a plant and things like that. And so I say to the kids a lot of times, I say, you know, trees are supposed to produce fruit, right? But trees don't start off as adult trees. They start off as seeds, as saplings, as roots. And so I say to these kids, I say, you know, I don't care if you're a tree. I mean, I do, but I don't care if you're a tree or I don't care if you're a root. I don't care if you're just a seed. If you're a seed in the dirt, I will take that 10 times out of 10 versus being a seed that's not even planted. Why? Because there's still growth. Man, I see these kids, man. I see these kids and they grow and they finally come to a point when they'll pray in public and they'll say, Lord, help me, right? And that's the kind of stuff that makes you cry. That's the kind of stuff when you look at them, you're like, man, the Lord's doing something in you, you know? But it gets a little bit tougher, right? Life gets a little bit tougher. And instead of making that climb to say, you know what? I'm going to endure through this trial. I'm going to continue to make that climb with Jesus. And I'm going to spend time with him. Because why? Because when I fail, I'm not going to be in the world. I'm not going to be surrounded by worldly influences. I'm not going to be surrounded by people, you know, who are going to hurt me. I'm going to be surrounded by Jesus and by disciples 
so that when I fail, I can learn and I can grow. And that sapling turns into a branch, right? Man, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a really sobering thing. And that's, that's why maybe to those of us who are here today who have probably not made that climb, who are probably the kind of people, and I'll throw myself into this ring as well, the kind of people who, you know, you get a text message on your phone early in the morning and boom, that, there goes your discipleship time, right? If we're those kind of people, I encourage us, make that climb because when we fail, we don't want to be surrounded by the world. You know, and I want to amplify this one more time. You know, there was a philosopher who's actually, you guys might know him. He was actually from Philadelphia in like the 70s and the 80s. Um, his name's Rocky Balboa. And uh, <laughs> he, says, he says, it's not about how hard you can, you can hit, but it's about how hard you can get hit and keep going, right? And that's discipleship, right? Life's going to get tough, you know? And the Bible even says that the trials, they are there so that our faith can grow and become like gold, right? Become precious, right? So those trials, they're, they're, they're for a purpose. They're, they're, they're good trials. They have, a, they have a reason. It's for us to be able to grow our faith to a more pure position, right? And so it's not about how hard the trial is, but it's about how we can endure through that trial and get to a point where we're ultimately a stronger Christian because discipleship doesn't end, does it? I would even encourage us to maybe ask those who are... Um, more, I would say, mature in the faith, um, and ask them about their discipleship walk, you know? You know, Tony always says to me, as my own father-in-law, he always says things like, you know, it's always important to find, like, you know, people who are wise and hang out with them, you know? And, and, And more so for me, what that means is, like, finding people who have gone through life who are maybe a bit seasoned, and, and asking them what their opinion is. And how, how, how have you grown through the Lord? You've been doing this for 40 years, so tell me, what's your discipleship life like, right? Because discipleship doesn't end. Discipleship is a continual process until we meet Jesus when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? And so I would encourage us, you know, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should look at people who've been doing this and being like, hey, can you, can you just kind of like maybe give me a few pieces of advice? How, how can I endure through this trial that I'm going through, because maybe the trial that I'm going through now is nothing compared to somebody who's like a 50-year Christian and what they're going through, right? And so even though I want to, now let's bring it back to Philip, right? Even though Philip answered Jesus incorrectly, right? Jesus says, hey, where can we go to get some food? And Philip says, listen, you're asking the wrong question, Jesus, because it's not even possible, right? Even though he answers incorrectly, Andrew, ironically, Peter's brother, decides to take a swing at Jesus' question, right? Look at, look at verse 8 with me. He says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, there was a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So question for you, church. Jesus says that the faith the size of a what can move mountains? Mustard seed, right? Now, at this time, that was scientifically the smallest element known to man. You know, we know the process of science, how later the Greeks were like, well, maybe there's this thing called an atom and, and so on and so forth, and now we are where we are today. Ultimately, the argument that they're making here in the, in the, in the Gospels is that you need a microscopic size of faith required to do something tremendous. Why? Because it has nothing to do with us, has everything to do with the Lord. And again, it's the process of taking us from a casual Christian to a discipled Christian. And all we need is a little bit of faith. And so Philip displays no faith. Not even a microscopic amount. Matter of fact, he even displays, I would make this case to say that he displays negative faith. He's going backwards. He's saying it's not possible, right? Andrew displays a little bit of faith, right? What's he say? He says, well, hey, listen, there's a little boy here that brought his lunch but what, is that, what does that have to do with anything, right? He kind of says, but what is this among so many? So he's displaying a little bit of, this, of faith saying, hey, Jesus, maybe, maybe we can use this, but I don't know how we're going to be able to use it. I mean, like maybe everyone could smell the fish and that's it, you know? But all he needs is a, a little bit of faith. And I want to display this by like, imagine how many of us have ever been to the link? Probably, okay, Eagle Stadium. Okay, yeah, Fenton, thank you. <laughs> Imagine standing in a stadium, there we go, and there's thousands of people, right? And imagine standing there, and you're looking at everybody, and Jesus says to you, he says, hey, Ryan, how are we going to be able to feed everybody? And there's a little boy next to you, maybe it's your son, and you say, well, my son, you know, my wife packed him his lunch, and I told my wife, ah, I'm not going to be needing any lunch, I'm fine, you know, but he has his lunch, but what are we going to do with that? 
Imagine that, right? Imagine looking at thousands of people, and he has a little Buzz Lightyear blunch box, and you pull out his food, you know? And you're like, I mean, maybe this could work, right? It's a little bit of faith. Jesus takes it, and he runs with it. Look how he does this. Verse 10. Jesus says, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, numbering about 5,000. And Jesus took the, uh, took the loaves, and we had given thanks. He distributed them first to the disciples, and then the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise, of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing's lost. Therefore they gathered them, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus took Andrew's small faith and performed an enormous miracle, blessing thousands of people, right? And so we might be able to assume, right, that if Philip had said, yeah, you know, I know this baker, Emilio, he works down the street, he has a little shop, yada, yada, yada. We might be able to assume that Jesus might have been like, okay, cool, let's go, let's go visit Emilio, let's go give him a little bit of wheat, and he's just going to keep on opening his oven, and then we're just going to keep on pulling bread out, and then boom, we're going to feed five. We, we might assume Jesus might have done that, but he didn't. Because Philip had no faith. And so Jesus was able to feed uh, 5,000 people with the faith that Andrew demonstrated. You know, and so I want us to pay attention also as to how Jesus performed that miracle, right? It says that Jesus took the loaves from that little boy, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them first to the disciples and from the disciples to those sitting down. Now, why is this important? Why is that order important? I want you to think about Philip here. I want you to think about Philip who is having a one-on-one conversation with Jesus who he very well admires, right? He very well admires Jesus and he told him that this very thing was impossible. He said this is not going to be able to happen. And I want you to think about this, right? How many of us have ever had a conversation with somebody who you genuinely admire, right? This is somebody that you respect, you love, X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden somebody just butts themselves into the conversation, and now they're having a one-on-one conversation, and you're like, wait, dude, like, that's, that's my admiration. I'm supposed to be talking to you. Like, you ever have felt like that? If Philip's anything like me, he would have been extremely angry. You know what I'm saying? Because he's, this is Philip's time. This is Philip's time to grow and to learn and to be able to understand what the Lord's doing. Andrew butts himself in, and now Andrew's the hotshot because he came up with this idea of using the five loaves in the two, in the two fish. And so I want you to think about Philip. Isn't that more than enough to just walk down the hill and be like, man, I messed it up. I messed it up. I'm sorry, Jesus. You can absolutely, I'm going to bow out, all right? I just, I don't belong here. Clearly, I don't have the faith. I don't have the capability. I'm going to leave. Like, I probably would have done that, you know? And Philip probably would have done that. But that doesn't disqualify him. Jesus distributed the loaves after giving thanks to his disciples and the disciples to them. Think about that. He looked at Jesus. He looked at Philip. You know, and he goes, Philip, I want you to hand these out. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine after, like, just completely falling on your face flat and Jesus saying, I want you to participate in this miracle here. I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to be a partaker here. I want you to be involved with the work that I'm doing. Even though you failed, even though you answered the question wrong, and you answered the question wrong, I still want you to be involved. That shows us our third point. Even when we fail, because it's not a matter of it's if, it's a matter of when, Right? Even when we fall, even when we fail, God still wants to use you for his ministry purposes. Even when you fall, God wants to use you. If you're here today, you. If you're watching online, you. He wants to use you. That's the whole reason why you made the climb in the first place, that you can sit there and he can use you, man. How many of us have observed people like Pastor Tony or, or maybe Tommy leading worship and I've looked at these kind of people or maybe you, have, maybe you have Christian friends and influences in your life when you're like, man, that person is so stinking holy and righteous that I am never going to be like them because of all the trash that I have in my backyard or whatever. That person is such an inspiration that, man, he can preach the word like that, but I can never do something like that because of all the things I got behind me. How many of us have ever felt something like that, right? How many of us have ever experienced something like that? Even though we fail, God still wants to use us. God still wants to use you. And when we ask the question, why? What is, what's so important about Ryan Mesa, right? What's so important about us? 
Look at this verse here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 31. It says this, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want to pause here. Man, if you haven't been listening all day, listen to this one verse right here. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Can I get an amen on that? Amen, Amen, right? The foolishness of God, not that there's foolishness in God, but the foolishness of God is wiser than the maximum ceiling of human wisdom, right? And the the weakness of God, not that God is weak, but the weakness of God is stronger than the maximum any kind of output a human being could create. That is the Lord. Brothers and sisters, he continues in verse 26, think of what you were when you were called. Think about your your former status before you were a Christian, of where you stood and the kind of life that you had. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were, were wise by human standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth or born into a wealthy household. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness our holiness and our redemption, right? Because remember, we were talking about doing all these things to define our, our righteousness. No, he says that he has, he, Jesus, has become our righteousness, our holiness, and has become our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, here it is, right? This is something that you might be able to, you know, post on Facebook maybe. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You, very, you may very well feel disqualified you may very well feel like a failure. Fill in the blank. Whatever you feel like, fill in the blank. But you miss one fact, right? God has chosen you. God has chosen you to fulfill his plans on this earth. We might think, man, what about all the stuff that I've gone through, right? What about, what about all my past? Think about the people that were involved in bringing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to planet Earth. I mean, think about it. Like, probably, like, the number one on the roster was probably David, right? The dude literally had his best friend killed so he can sleep with his wife, right? When we talk about these people, we're not talking about all-stars. We're talking about people who are, by all means, disqualified in their own works of righteousness, right? Because our works disqualify us. But we miss one thing. You are called, therefore... You are qualified. Amen? You are called, therefore you are qualified. So Jesus uses his disciples to complete this miracle, but I don't want you to miss on how it's done, right? First, he gave thanks for the food. What does this mean? It means that all glory comes and goes to the Lord. It means that nothing without God is possible. It means that if we're going to do anything, we better hope that God is with us. And you know what? Top of my head, right? I'm thinking about that story in Joshua, right? When they're about to go out to battle, and there's the angel of the Lord, and Joshua goes up to him and says, hey, are you for us or are you for them? And then he goes, neither. I am for the armies of the Lord, right? And then at that moment, he like falls to his knees, and he's like, oh my gosh, right? Just, just think about the magnitude of that, right? All glory comes from God and goes back to God, right? It's not, see, the purpose of ministry is not to feed 5,000 people. It's a cool byproduct, right? But the purpose of ministry is to give glory to the Lord. The output is determined by God. You could have a ministry of one person, and that might be what God wants us to do. You could have a ministry of 5,000 people, and that might be what the Lord wants you to do. But the output is not what's important. The output is glory to the Lord. Amen? 
Number two, we already saw this. He involves his disciples, right? So even though we are failures, even though we are disqualified, even though fill in the blank, right? God wants to use you. You're called, therefore, you're qualified. Uh, Third point that he does for this miracle um, is that he clearly shows... Oh, sorry. The third point is that he... uh, That everyone has as much as they want, right? He goes up to everybody and says, how, much, how many pieces of bread do you want? Five? Cool. Seven? Nice. Nine? Thirty-two? Great. We got, keep it coming. Keep it coming, you know? Like, how cool would that be? You're just reaching into the basket more bread's coming out. You know what I'm saying? It's just awesome. So everyone gets as much as they want, you know? I kind of wish I was there. It's like a crazy banquet. And so everyone, they just write. So what does this show? Everyone's getting what they want. So what does that show? It shows that any work of God is done in fullness and to completion. It doesn't leave anything or anyone lacking. It's also a reminder that servants of God and those who are doing the ministry should not quit early, but stay until the job is done, right? That's called faithfulness. That's called, you know, being, being, uh, you know, being able to endure all the way to the end, right? Fourth quarter type of, um, type of stuff there, right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, right? Everything's fulfilled. Any work of God, no one's left short. No one's cut out. Everybody is completely uh, filled. And the the fourth point that happens in this miracle is that 12 baskets were filled with food. uh, And that they had more when the ministry started uh, or they had more when the ministry ended than when it started. You know, and I got to say, I 100%, 100% see this in youth group, right? We started, you know, my, my, me, my wife, and Tommy and Gina, like two and a half years ago, we started with just a hope, a dream, and a desire to serve youth group kids, right? That was it. We just want to see who's going to come. And then now, I think, I think Tony might have shown, like, the picture. We're, like, bursting at the seams with kids. They're just coming. And, like, where are you from? Gal- who's from Gal- You know, it's like... Gee, like, where are you guys coming from, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, like the Lord, like, you end the ministry more than what you started with, you know? Because, and then Tony's, this is Tony's word, so if I get in trouble, it's like him, you know? It's like, he says, he says, God's problem, right? God's plan, or God's plan, God's problem, right? Like, he's, he's going to be the one to figure it out. So, whatever the Lord's calling you to, you know, going back to Philip, right? If you're worrying about the physical, if the Lord's like calling you to whatever, right? And you're worrying like, man, how is that going to happen, right? The Lord's going to have you finish with more when it's done than when it started, you know? One time I heard a cool metaphor. It was about a, um, about a wheat farmer, right? And essentially the metaphor goes along the lines um, about how, you know, you have like a barrel of, um, of wheat, right? And you can either take that wheat and plant all of it and have nothing for the winter, or you can maybe have half of it for the winter, make a bunch of bread, and then you, you know, throw half of it. And then when it all comes back, right, it doubles. Well, the person that's going to have more wheat when the harvest comes is the people that sow more, right? And that's where we get the idea, you know, you shall reap what you sow. That those who sow abundantly reap abundantly, right? If you're, if you're taking what you got and you're making bread for the wintertime and that's all you're doing is because you want to consume then when the, winter, when, the, when the spring times come and when it's time to plant, you don't have anything to sow. So the next winter time, you don't have anything to reap. And so the same thing, those who sow abundantly, right, they're going to get back more abundantly and they're going to keep on sowing abundantly and reaping. It's not because, it's not because we want to become wealthy. It's because the Lord's blessing us to, to continue to blessing others, right? And so the ministry always ends more than when it starts. And so as the miracle finishes, all the men are filled Right? And they declare publicly their faith in the Lord. But this is not what we would assume, like, oh yeah, and like, this is the Lord and Savior. No, no, Look with me what they say uh, Jesus says. Verse 14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said that this is truly a prophet who is to come into the world. And so I want you to return to that perspective of a casual, you know, believer or just, you know, someone who just kind of comes to church and like that's for them the definition of being in good standing is because I go to church every Sunday, you know, maybe I feed the poor, maybe I do all these things and because I do all these things, right, I'm a good person, right? That's someone who we consider casual uh, and then a disciple, somebody who's willing to make the climb, right? They, they, you know, whatever, whatever it is, 
maybe making the climb is coming to church this morning. And maybe you might tell me, Ryan, you have no idea how difficult it was to come to church. Hey, amen, brother, right? Maybe making the climb is coming here today, right? But that's the difference. People who define their, what they do as their righteousness versus actually meeting with the Lord and having, as Paul said in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, as him being our righteousness, right? And so returning to that perspective, we see that the disciples here, they're doing the work with Jesus, and what they're learning is that Jesus can do anything, and he wants us to participate in that work. And so, but these people who are just kind of hanging out with Jesus and are casual in their, in their faith, right? After seeing the miracle displayed, and after being the people that are directly being blessed by the miracle, right? They're being served, and they're being filled with food, right? What do they say? Do they all become disciples? No, they don't. And I think that's a sobering reminder, too, that sometimes when we're out doing ministry, I mean, I, I, I was just mentioning, right, in youth group, you know, we, we've had some kids come in, display growth, and leave. We've had that. And so it's a sobering reminder that sometimes that happens, you know, and, and, and we just, man, we don't quit because of that. We keep going. We keep going. We keep on serving, you know. And uh, in, this, in this area, right, these, these people... They were the ones that were directly blessed by this miracle, but just because, you know, they were blessed by a miracle, that doesn't cause them to have faith. Having faith is a, you know, extreme regeneration process done by the preeminence of God, right? He's the one that causes us to, to, to have the faith. And so miracles, I mean, think about Judas. Judas was with Jesus the entire time, right? And so they received the blessings of that miracle, and their faith is they say, again, look with me in verse 14, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now here's the thing, right? That's not that hard of a thing to say, especially at this time period. And, and here's the reason why. If you were able to do the math, which most of the Jews were, they would have known from the, from the prophet Daniel that Daniel prophesied the exact day that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. If you would have done the math and been able to calculate, you would have known, okay, on April whatever, you know, year 32, um, Messiah's coming. They would have known. And so because of that, there is an atmosphere of extreme angst and tension knowing full well, hey, Messiah's coming this year. We know. We know that on this day, the man that enters on the colt of a donkey is coming in. That's Messiah. We know this. And so there's this, there's this angst and there's this like tension and people are like looking constantly. Okay, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Right? And we actually see this displayed in John chapter 4 when Jesus is sitting there with the woman at the well and he's having a conversation with her. The woman at the well says to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming. Right? This was a very common understanding. And so for these men to stand up and say, ah, this is the prophet. It's not a hard thing to do. It doesn't really require a whole lot of faith. And they're just referencing a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So question, was Jesus a prophet? Yes. Was Jesus only a prophet? No, one of you guys are listening. <laughs> no, he wasn't, right? Jesus was not only a prophet. And that is arguably the entire purpose of, I would say, the overall gospel, but specifically the gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so because the people had an incorrect view of who Jesus was, they attempted to fit Jesus into a convenient role that fits their life. And I've seen this tons of times. And, you know, and I'm not someone who's a seasoned you know, Bible teacher or whatever. And you guys know that, right? I've seen this you know, in my own high school, a you know, little bit of college life and, and, and some youth group ministry of people being like, well, you know, I kind of think God is. And then they define God who endorses their sin in their life. You guys, ever seen, you guys have probably seen that too. A lot more than I have probably. And so it's a convenient thing to just take Jesus and all the things that you want, pull it out, and then you create this new Jesus who endorses your life, and then that gives you the comfort you need to not repent. And I've seen this, and we've seen this. And so these men do this, and they fit Jesus into what role? Verse 15, read it with me. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. 
So remember, Jesus' purpose is to create disciples. His purpose is to take from the pool of casual believers to move them into the pool of disciples. That's the ministry, right? And since they do not have a correct belief in Jesus, they end up creating this model of Jesus that's convenient for their needs, right? And their needs is to have a king that's going to overthrow Rome. Remember, the region of Galilee was an extremely um, tense region full of a bunch of rebels. Um, you guys ever heard of uh, Simon the Zealot, right? The, the, the apostle. He was called the Zealot because he was involved in tons of like revolutionary work, right? And Jesus calls him and Matthew, a tax collector, to be apostles together. How crazy is that, right? You know, they're like enemies, you know? And so this region is full of like militiamen, like they're ready to rock, you know? And Jesus has an army of 5,000 men who are just filled with protein and carbohydrates. And they're like, let's make a king and let's do this. You know what I'm saying? And so because they have an incorrect um, model of who Jesus is, he decides that he's not going to endorse their idea of who he is. And so what's he do? He goes back to the very area where he knows that they're not going to go, the mountain. He climbs back up. And I can almost hear Jesus saying, you want me? Make the climb. Come be a disciple. You want me involved in your life? You want, okay, fine, absolutely, I accept. Make the climb. Come be a disciple. You want, you want me involved? I'm good. I will teach you, but you need to make the climb. And sure enough, they don't. Of course they don't. And so point four is this. Jesus will not be anything to you other than who he is, which is Lord and Savior. Now, I can already kind of hear, like, well, wait a second. Isn't Jesus our strong tower, our friend, and this and that? Yes, that is who he is. That is his name. Those are the names of God. That's who he is. But he will not be an idolatrous form of what he's not, right? Think about it. You read through the Old Testament, and any time there's, a, there's a, um, like, a, uh, like a surge of faith, right, or a reformation, if you would, Every time they do that, what do they do? They put away their household gods. These little gods that they made for themselves that they worship, they, they put those away and they put God back on the throne. Jesus will not be your household God. 100%. He will not be um, a Jesus that you decide to make to endorse your sin in your life. He will not be that. That's not who he is. And he will not endorse it. He is our strong tower. He is our friend. He is our refuge. But he will not be an idolatrous Jesus that he is not. Right? And so... My question to you as we end is this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he, right? Is he the Jesus of Scripture, right? Or is he? have you made him to be something else? And I know that that's a tough answer. I, re, I, know that, I know that it is. And I know that some of us here might be wrestling with that. But let me make this one last point. It's better to wrestle with that question on the mountaintop with Jesus being discipled than it is to be in the world being taught by secular sources, isn't it, right? Because the world's going to tell you who Jesus is, right? They're going to say, well, Jesus is a fake Messiah. He's this, he's that. And the world's going to tell you, and then, you know, you're kind of left to what you believe. But if you're on the mountaintop, if you've decided to make the climb, if you've decided to make the climb, and let's say that climb is coming here this morning, Jesus is going to tell you who he is. Jesus is going to show you in Scripture, this is who I am, right? And it's so much better to be there and to be taught by Jesus. And so my question to end is this. Are you on the mountaintop? And what is it in your life that prevents you from making that climb? I want you to do this. Analyze what that is, remove it, and make the climb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.